Bam 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 Welcome back to Go Help Yourself, a comedy self-help podcast to make life suck less. That's Lisa Linky. That's Misty Stinnett. Thank you. And this is the podcast where we review a popular self-help book. Each episode, we talk about how we feel about it, what we like, what we hate, what's working, what's dumb, what's nice, what's not. Keep going. <laughs> That's it. I froze. Oh, okay. I froze. Okay. Um, if you like what you hear, go buy the book. If you don't. Support the author. Don't. If you don't, don't, don't. It's no sweat off our backs. Um, just keep doing. You do you. You do you. You keep listening. And we do us. Yeah. And we do do. We do. And we, do, do. you do you and we, we do, do do. And uh, we will just keep providing meaningless chatter in the background like this <laughs> while you clean your house, drive your car, yes. drown out your kids yes. or your in-laws. We're here for you. We're here for you. And we're happy about it. We're so happy about it. And this week, we're on part two of When Things Fall Apart by Pima Children. That's right. Last week, we did part one. If you missed it, sucks for you. Yeah, go back. You know what? We'll wait. (laughs) What if we just just paused for an hour? Yeah. Um, And welcome back. Yeah. Thank you. Mm, Cool. Misty. Lise. Knowing that we've had a full week to kind of sit on this and digest this. Yeah, this is, we're definitely not recording this in the same session that we recorded episode one in. We're just wearing the same outfits and are in the same place across the table. Misty is very into keeping up the facade for you listeners. (laughs) Meanwhile, I'm like, show it all. (laughs) You know, when we record a two-part episode, it's in one session, people... Yeah. Could you imagine? I feel like if we didn't, I would sit down and be like, who what are you? What the hell did we say who last are you? time? What is your name? I've forgotten everything about Call you. Call me by your name. Oh, I haven't seen that movie yet. Me either. I hear let's it's great. Let's watch it together. Oh, let's movie make night. a Okay. Okay, let's dive right in. So what did we cover on the last one we talked about? Well, let me ask you. Okay. <laughs> it was five minutes ago, so let me, <laughs> let me try. Uh, we covered... Uh, how to meditate and label things with unconditional friendliness. Yes. Like thinking. Yes. And that our thoughts are just like waves on a big blue sea or clouds yes. in a big blue sky, something blue. Yes. We talked about how death and hopelessness are actually our friends. Yeah. And if that sounds fucking weird to you and you're listening to this for the first time, it sounded weird to me too. Well, um, yeah, but, but also but um, just, we experience death all day, all day long. Yeah, the endings of things, yeah. complications of things. So that was the the thinking about death in broader terms like that was really interesting, I yeah. think. Um, and just about that when you don't attach to fear or hope, you are... No longer coming from a place of scarcity. Yes. Because I think we said fear is you're afraid you'll lose what you have, so scarcity, or it'll be taken away. And then hope is that you're hoping you'll get what you want, which means that you inherently don't have what you want or enough right now. Mm -hmm. So letting go of fear and hope means you're coming from a place of contentment. And you're embracing that groundlessness, which is truly the present moment and truly where we can live. Living on the precipice of the unknown and it's uncomfortable and that's part of being a human. And And that's how we really get to know ourselves. Yeah. That's the opportunity. Great. Great. So you know what? Don't go back and listen to part one. You just got the recap. You're welcome. (laughs) For those of you who waited a week for the crib notes, Smart. Nice. (laughs) So we're going to jump right in, starting with chapter eight, the eight worldly dharmas. And Greg's. Thank you. Um, (laughs) I'm going to read you the little paragraph that she has uh, plucked out here. Thank you. We might feel that somehow we should try to eradicate these feelings of pleasure and pain, loss and gain, praise and blame, fame and disgrace. A more practical approach would be to be to get to know them, to see how they hook us, see how they color our perception of reality, see how they aren't all that solid. Then the eight worldly dharmas become the means for growing wiser as well as kinder and more content. Okay. What's a dharma? Exactly. So one of the classic Buddhist teachings on hope and fear concerns what are known as the eight worldly dharmas. Thank you. These are four pairs of opposites, four things that we like and become attached to, and four things that we don't like and try to avoid. Mm. The basic message is that when we are caught up in the eight worldly dharmas, we suffer. 
First, we like pleasure and we are attached to it. Conversely, we don't like pain. Thank you. Second, we like and are attached to praise and we try to avoid criticism and blame. Mm. Third, we like and are attached to fame and we dislike and try to avoid grace. And finally, we are attached to gain, to getting what we want, and we don't like losing what we have. So they are. Yes, thank you. Pleasure and pain. Okay. Loss and gain. Mm -hmm. Praise and blame. Fame and disgrace. Oh, praise and blame. Yes. Okay. So according to this very simple teaching, becoming immersed in these four pairs of opposites, pleasure and pain, loss and gain, fame and disgrace, praise and blame, is what keeps us stuck in the pain of samsara, which you might remember is the cycle of um, hopelessness because we keep uh, uh, imagining that we will get what we want and avoid pain, right? Yeah, or that, or that somehow we can get out of this cycle and be free of, right? Yes. Yeah. She says, let's take praise and blame. Someone walks up to us and says, you are old. I also wrote, I also fuck that person. If it just so happens that we want to be old, we feel really good. Wait, is that, you said blame? Yes, praise and blame. You're old. I blame you for being old. Someone walks up to us and says, you are old. If it just so happens that we want to be old, we feel really good. Mm. If we feel, we feel as if we've just been praised. Oh. That gives us enormous pleasure and a sense of gain and fame. But suppose we have been obsessing all year about getting rid of wrinkles and firming up our jawline. When someone says, you are old, we feel insulted. We've just been blamed and we feel a corresponding sense of pain. And we pick up our phone and fire our dermatologist. Thank you. Um, She says, even... If we don't talk about this particular teaching any further, we can already see that many of our mood swings are related to how we interpret what happens. Oh, yeah. Which I think is what you were talking last last episode about. Doesn't it seem like it would be a boring life? Mm-hmm. And, um, and I think what she's saying is it's not a boring life because all of the excitement is happening on your introspection and understanding who you are and how you're interpreting the world. Yeah. Well, that was before I realized it was from a place of contentedness. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. She says, we carry around a subjective reality that is continually triggering our emotional reactions, which reminds me of Eckhart Tolle. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and the irony is that we make up the eight worldly dharmas. They are nothing concrete in themselves. Oh, da-da-da-damn, mm-hmm. as Lisa Linky would say. She says, we might feel that somehow we should try to eradicate these feelings. Mm. A more practical approach would be to get to know them. Uh, to see how they hook us, how they color our perception of reality, see how they aren't at all that solid. Mm. Then the eight worldly dharmas become the means for growing wiser as well as kinder and more content. Oh, mm-hmm. You know what this reminds me of? This morning, I walked to Starbucks, uh, my friendly neighborhood Starbucks. Yes. Uh, Spider-Man was not there. Thank you. And... I grabbed my coffee and I was coming out. I was on a crosswalk. I'm I must be attracting this kind of energy lately because I have almost been hit by cars in the middle of crosswalks. I'm not kidding, four times this week. Wow. Not kidding. It doesn't help that to get to work I have to cross like a horribly busy intersection. But this was like Culver City at 10 a.m. on a Sunday morning. Okay. Um I had the walk signal. I waited. I was just going. It's broad daylight. It's bright outside. And this, ironically, Honda CRV just comes at me like he's going to turn left right into me and hit me. So, of course, I freeze. I stop. And then he, like, sort of sees me and stops. And I just threw up my arms like, hey, like, are you serious? You know, just like in just a gut reaction. And then he flicked me off. And, of course, we know we know from reading A New Earth and all these things that it's like, uh, that that's the e- his ego coming forth because he sees me with aggressive body language, so his ego rises up. But just imagine this. I almost get hit by a car, and then the guy flicks me off, yep. right, for that. So I, I felt horrible after that. I felt mm. embarrassed and humiliated and just, like, very agitated because of the adrenaline in my body. And, uh, uh, and it, it was interesting because I was trying to put into practice exactly what Pima is talking about and what Eckhart talks about. I'm on a first name basis with these well, authors. They love everyone. you. They adore you, Mr. Children and uh, Mrs. Children and, and Mr. Tolly. And uh, uh, but anyway, I had to I had to stop and do a mindfulness exercise to, and it didn't fully remove the feelings of my body. And I know she wouldn't say like necessarily remove them, but I knew I had to walk back to my house and get in a creative space because I yeah. had I had deadlines. Um, anyway, this is a really what would you say? A long walk for a short jump. Thank you. Of saying, 
I really relate. And ah. I don't know. I don't know how to. It's hard to sit in that stuff sometimes. Well, I, I love that you just said that. She she puts a story um, like if somebody, uh, she says, sometimes we're going to find ourselves completely caught up in a drama. Thank you. <laughs> we're going to be. Am I segue queen this yes, week? Yes, you're segue <laughs> queen. She says, Give me the crown. We're going to be just as angry as if someone had walked into the room and slapped us in the face. Then it might occur to us, wait a minute, what's going on here? Yes. We might look into it and we are able to see that out of nowhere. We feel that we have lost something or been insulted. Well, I I felt that I was going to lose my life. Yes. I was genuinely worried in that moment I was yes. going to be hit by this fucking five-year-old CRV with bad hubcaps. Yes. This is me having a judgment because I'm still coming from a yes. place of fear. Where this thought came from, we don't know. But here we are, hooked again by the eight worldly dharmas. <sighs> right then, we can feel that energy, do our best to let the thoughts dissolve, and give ourselves a break. I did that. Beyond I all the fucking did that. Beyond all the what? fuss and bother is a big sky. Right there in the middle of the tempest, we can drop it and relax. You can't see it, but I've got She's, my happy shoulders she on. She does have her happy shoulders on. <laughs> or we might be completely caught up in a delightful, pleasurable fantasy. We look into it and see that out of nowhere, we feel we have gained something, won something, mm. been praised for something. What pops up is out of our control, totally unpredictable, like images in a dream. But it comes, and we're hooked again by the eight worldly dharmas. Do you know what's so funny? Yes. That's like the charisma myth. Yes. Olivia Fox Cabane is like, do whatever you need to do yes. to make yourself feel powerful and confident and get, because your brain will take over your body and exuber like exuberate? Exuberant. Exude all Exude, of this uh-huh. great, thank you, body language. and But it's so interesting. Kima's saying, like, don't, well, that's it's also so false. interesting that I think we are very attuned to becoming very introspective when something, quote unquote, negative happens. Mm-hmm. But when something positive happens, we don't get very introspective about it at all. You're right. So oh. she says, we can explore these familiar pairs of opposites in everything we do. Instead of automatically falling into habitual patterns, we can begin to notice how we react when someone praises us. When someone blames us, how do we react? Mm. When we've lost something, how do we react? When we feel we've gained something, how do we react? How do we attach either one of those to our ego? Do we feel pleasure or pain? Or is there a whole libretto that goes along with it? Oh, God, a libretto. For sure, there's the Misty Stin at libretto. Yes. <laughs> when we become inquisitive about these things, look into them, see who we are and what we do with the curiosity of a young child. What might seem like a problem becomes a source of wisdom. <gasps> Oddly enough, this curiosity begins to undercut what we call ego pain or self-centeredness, and we see more clearly. And I just wrote, I don't get introspective and curious about all the positive side of Mm-mm. emotions, right? I don't either. We don't take that opportunity to know ourselves deeper. Oh, my God. I'm self-assigning myself homework. Okay. Can Fantastic. I do that? You sure can. can. I notice all the positive things? She says, this letting things go is sometimes called non-attachment, but not with the cool remote quality often associated with that word. This non-attachment has more kindness and more intimacy than that. It's actually a desire to know, like the questions of a three-year-old. We want to know our pain so we can stop endlessly running. We want to know our pleasure so we can stop endlessly grasping. Oh. Then somehow our questions get bigger and our inquisitiveness more vast. We want to know about loss so we might understand other people when their lives are falling apart. Mm. We want to know about gain so we might understand people when they are delighted or when they get arrogant and puffed up and carried away. When we become more insightful and compassionate about how we ourselves get hooked, we spontaneously feel more tenderness for the human race. Yes, we do. We sure do. Don't we? Um, I'm skipping the chapter called Six Kinds of Loneliness, Mm. but it was very interesting in case you want to read the book. Thank you. Um, There is a chapter called Curious About Existence, and I wrote, you know I'm going to love this. (laughs) She says there are three truths traditionally called three marks of our existence, impermanence, suffering, and egolessness. These words sound threatening. Yes, <laughs> it's easy to get the idea that there is something wrong with impermanent suffering and egolessness, which is like thinking that there is something wrong with our fundamental situation. But there's nothing wrong with impermanent suffering and egolessness. They can be celebrated. Our fundamental situation is joyful. I am going to be Lisa Linky for okay. a second. Okay, you know and, I'm down for and that. And say, okay, um, so Nazi Germany, World War II. Yes. You wake up in a concentration camp. You're Jewish. Yes. Half your family's dead. Yes. You could die any moment. Yes. That should be joyful. Well, I would say, if I'm at being asked to be Pima Children right now, which mm-hmm. I am not, I am not an ordained Buddhist nun who has yet, really understood. Yet, Thank you. be that's, optimistic. That's not my Don't path. attach to hope. That's not my path. You don't know. 
There's time. Well, here's what she says about impermanence. Thank you. It's the goodness of reality. Just as the seasons are in continual flux, impermanence is the essence of everything. It's babies becoming children, then teenagers, then adults, then old people, and somewhere along the way, dropping dead. Impermanence is meeting and parting. It's falling in in love and falling out of love. It's bittersweet, like buying a new shirt and finding it years later as part of a patchwork quilt. People have no respect for impermanence. We take no delight in it. In fact, we despair of it. We regard it as pain. I have to stop you because you're answering this with a totally unrelated. This is a quote. I feel like you're deflecting. No, because I'm going to answer her three things. Impermanence, suffering, and egolessness. Okay, great. Okay. Um, So I guess if I realized I were about, I had the opportunity, I had the possibility of dying, Mm -hmm. that's part of impermanence, right? Yeah, but she was saying you're suffering can be celebrated and can be joyful, right? Am I remembering that right? Uh Uh-huh. And she says, our suffering is based so much on our fear of impermanence. Okay. Our pain is so rooted in our one-sided, lopsided view of reality. Whoever got the idea that we could have pleasure without pain? It's promoted rather wildly in this world, and we buy it. I just feel like this is one of those places where, as we often find ourselves saying about these self-help books— caveat would be helpful sure there are some situations in which that amount of suffering cannot be celebrated or joyful and it's not about impermanence is that half your family was slaughtered or all of your family you know what i mean i agree and i think this chapter is being curious about your own existence okay versus um uh, uh genocide cool but <laughs> Oh my God. I do think that I'm not laughing in genocide. Oh my I God. do think that when we talk about how compassion can expand into larger parts of the world, mm-hmm. that's it's a pretty interesting point. Okay, so let me get there. Okay, um, uh, the point isn't to cultivate one thing as opposed to another, but to relate properly to where we are. So inspiration and wretchedness complement one another. Without, with only inspiration, we become arrogant. With only wretchedness, we lose our vision. So we have to really understand how both sides of the coin okay. and where we relate to those. Okay. Um, then she talks about ego, and I was like, this is totally. Can we also celebrate egolessness? Often we think of egolessness as a great loss, but actually it's a gain. Yes. The acknowledgement of egolessness, our natural state, is like regaining eyesight after having been blind or regaining hearing after having been deaf. Egolessness has been compared to the rays of the sun. With no solid sun, the rays just radiate outward. In the same way, wakefulness naturally radiates out when we're not so concerned with ourselves. Mm. Egolessness is the same thing as basic goodness or Buddha nature, our unconditional being. It's what we always have and never really lose. Mm. And ego could be defined as whatever covers up basic goodness. Yeah. Um, she said, egolessness is a state of mind that has complete confidence in the sacredness of the world. It is unconditional well-being, unconditional joy that includes all the different qualities of our experience. Does that mesh with Tolly or no? A a thousand percent, yeah. Okay, I love it. Yeah. Um, Okay, so after uh, impermanence is suffering. Yes. When suffering arises in our lives, we can recognize it as suffering. We can recognize suffering as suffering. Thank you. (laughs) Thank you. I mean, she's like, you know, all kinds of suffering. But even just suffering can be suffering. Yeah. Then we can be curious, notice, and be mindful about our reactions to that. Again, usually we're either resentful and feel cheated or somehow we're delighted. But whatever our reaction is, <laughs> it's usually habitual. I like that you whispered that like it's a secret. Um, when egolessness arises, we can recognize it as an egolessness, a fresh moment, a clear perception of a smell or a sight or a sound. Mm. So it doesn't have to be a big deal. Egolessness is available all the time. Curiously enough, we also experience egolessness when we don't know what's happening, when mm-hmm. we've lost our reference point, mm-hmm. when we get a shock and our mind is stopped. We can also notice our reactions to that. Yeah. Um, so those are the three, uh, to be curious about your existence. Again, um, impermanent suffering and, and egolessness. Cool. So as for uh, somebody waking up in Nazi Germany, I, mean, I, I was just wondering about the statement about you suffering in your inherent situation can be celebrated. I mean, I guess what she would say is that 
by just experiencing the present moment and being egoless uh, and being egoless and having experiencing egolessness and acknowledging suffering and not living in that um, samsara that you can experience more contentment. Do you know what I mean? Hmm. Yeah. Right. Uh, I I mean, that's just such a hard. I don't think she, I I don't mean to be putting you up against contentment. Well, I was going to say like contentment and concentration camp. It's not like, but I I put in the same sentence. But I think more contentment. Uh, also, I, I first of all, they're Jewish, so I don't think they would be Buddhists. But right, yeah. so I take issue and exception with the the challenge. But I hear right. what you're saying. But I think that her her thing would be like instead of, and I feel like, you know, I I don't know how people how, how people survived in those. Like I mm-hmm. I toured, um, um, we were visiting Munich and we took a train to Dachau to visit, and and tour it and um. You know, we didn't get a lot of sense of we, – we saw how they lived in terms of, like, where they lived, what kind of clothing they had, mm-hmm. you know, like, what kind of work they did. But we didn't get a sense for how they survived, mm-hmm. right? Like, what they did, their mental fortitude. But my guess is that as anybody and as any survivor of genocide or any survivor of some kind of, like, internment – there has to be some disconnect, right? Like, well, I think the thing I'm taking issue with, and we don't have to stick on this forever, but it's, I feel like I wouldn't be a responsible co-host of this if I didn't say, I think there's a difference between saying any amount of suffering can ultimately be tolerated. Yes. You can work your way through any amount of suffering versus it's a thing to be celebrated. Celebrated is the concept that I am taking umbrage with. Yes. What I'm understanding her saying is celebrated because it's an opportunity to know yourself better and how you react when there's suffering. Okay. And maybe there's a disconnect between my definition and her definition of the word celebrated. Yeah. But yeah. Uh, and also, you know, her her point in this is really how to follow the way of Buddha. Right, right. Right. So yeah. if so if you're trying to just kind of glean a few things in everyday life, mm-hmm. I don't know how well that's going to kind of graft on, right? Mm. Um but if you wanted to become an ordained nun yeah. or monk, like this is the beginning of the way, right? Right. Um and, you know, life is suffering in it from a Buddhist mindset. Right. So I do believe that they do think that there is celebration and suffering because yeah. there is this groundlessness and that's the only thing that you can count on. Okay. Um, okay, now we're talking about widening the circle of compassion. Great. All right. Um, so she says, when we talk about compassion, we usually mean working with those less fortunate than ourselves. However, in working with the teachings on how to awaken compassion and trying to help others, we might come to realize that compassionate action involves working with ourselves as much as working with others. Yeah, Compassionate action is a practice, one of the most advanced. There's nothing more advanced than relating with others. There's nothing more advanced than communication, compassionate communication. Hmm. To relate with others compassionately is a challenge. Really communicating to the heart and being there for someone else, our child, spouse, parent, client, patient, or the homeless woman on the street, means not shutting down on that person, which means, first of all, not shutting down on ourselves. This means Mm. allowing ourselves to feel what we feel without pushing it away. It means accepting every aspect of ourselves, even the parts we don't like. I find that it's a lot easier to be compassionate and show up for someone and, and create a space and a dynamic when I'm not overworked or at my wits end. I do feel like yeah. as an introvert and probably as an extrovert, but I don't know, I'm an introvert. It yeah. um, it takes a lot out of me to do any people interaction. Uh, for sure. So. I get flooded when I drive past a homeless encampment. Like I mm. immediately get flooded. It's too hard for me to be compassionate to them in the moment because all I can deal with is my pain, mm. right? Right. I'm not able to set that aside. I can't be compassionate with myself in that moment. Right. So I can't even get to helping them. Right, right. So she says, being compassionate is a pretty tall order. All of us are in relationships every day of our lives, but particularly if we are people who want to help people, people mm. with cancer, people with AIDS, abused women or children, abused animals, anyone who's hurting, something we soon notice 
is that the person we set out to help may trigger unresolved issues in us. Mm. Even though we want to help and maybe we do it for a few days or a month or two, sooner or later, someone walks through that door and pushes all of our buttons. Mm. We find ourselves hating those people or scared of them or feeling like we just can't handle them. This is true always if we are sincere about wanting to benefit others. Sooner or later, all our own resolved issues will come up and we'll be confronted with ourselves. Yep. I mean, this sounds like... And and maybe it's because we're reading this later in the podcast. Yeah. You know, if this had been one of the first books we'd read, maybe maybe some of these concepts would be feeling more novel yeah. to me. But it feels like we've we've heard it a lot, you know, things that you react to in other people are things that you generally don't like about yourself. And I've heard that. I mean, and maybe that's because I heard this from my parents growing up a lot. Like, I, I heard that my whole life growing up. I never heard it until last year. Yeah. So, uh, you know, if I was, and maybe that's because I, my mom was always very compassionate. I'd be like, I fucking hate that about this person. She'd be like, well, what do you think about yourself is resonant in that? And I'd be like, well, now I hate you. Your mom is so self-aware. Well, all right. Um, (laughs) What we hate in ourselves, we'll hate in others. To the degree that we ha- to the degree that we have compassion for ourselves, we'll also have compassion for others. Mm. Oh, I'd never heard it like that before. Uh-huh. Oh shit! Having compassion starts and ends with having compassion for all those unwanted parts of ourselves, all those imperfections that we don't even want to look at. Your face is amazing. Her eyes are so wide right now. Well, because I feel like this is it's twofold. I feel like it's giving me permission. To have compassion for myself. Yes. And I think I think so many of us are taught to find faults. Yes. It's like in Mean Girls when they're all picking themselves apart in the mirror. Like, yes. oh, no, my nose is so, my pores are so big. My thighs are huge. Do you remember like, that Amy Schumer um, sketch yes. where they yeah. all hated themselves and the one girl took the compliment? Yeah. And then Amy's like, oh, Everybody thank blew you. Up and then like literally their minds, <laughs> their minds exploded. Yeah. And then I think the second reason that I had such a strong reaction is, I didn't even know I needed permission to be compassionate to myself. So I'm having a moment of self-awareness. But even understanding that, and I'm sure this is from like deep conditioning, you know, about being a woman and I identify as a woman. And so it's like sometimes we don't give ourselves permission to do things until they're for the good of other people. Yes. And I shouldn't need permission to do that. And I shouldn't need that caveat. But I apparently do. And so I'm processing that, and and holy shit. Thanks okay. for sharing that. Thanks for being vulnerable. Oh, girl. I'm here for it. It's just, <laughs> it's just us chickens. Um, and then she said the sentence that made me do an exclamation point. Oh, my God. She said, compassion isn't some kind of self-improvement project or ideal that we're trying to live up to. Exclamation point. Because I was like, oh, it feels like fucking self-help, right? It does. Like, it does. It feels, it feels like... Oh, you know that you're a good person when you have compassion for other people. Yes. I feel like I feel like whenever someone says, oh, that person's a good person, we automatically think they care about other people. They yes. understand other people. They have time you know for what? other people. There's shit that they hate about themselves, too. That's right. Thank you. Um, then she talks about blame, and blaming is a way to protect our hearts, to try to protect what is soft and open and tender in ourselves. Hmm. Rather than own that pain, we scramble to find some comfortable ground. Yeah. Um, then she has this really great way. And I, have you ever, my mom always used to get so mad because people would say, sit in your feelings. And she'd be like, what the fuck does that mean? Although, you know, Linda would never cuss. So she'd say, what does that mean? Oh, no. um, so do you know, do they, you've heard that phrase, sit, sit with your feelings. Yeah. Does, do you know what that means for you? I think Did it, somebody ever explain it to you? Uh, you know, most of the self-awareness I've gotten has been... As an adult, and it started like five years ago when I went to therapy for the first time, and then it accelerated when I started taking voice club with Matt Beisner. And so he is really the first person who has said – he talks about tolerating discomfort, but Mm -hmm. that's what it is. Whatever comes up and makes you uncomfortable, sit with it. Lean into it. If there's a student that you find that is triggering you, go towards them. Get to know them better. So that's what it means for me is to not change it and just go, oh, yeah. And then there was one therapist who said, what if you just said – 
this is present for me right now. Because I used to get really agitated that I'd feel a certain way and couldn't change it. Why am I feeling? I'd blame myself and something's wrong because I'm feeling pain. Double down. Thank you. Yeah. So it just means for me, don't change it. Let it be there. And sometimes in the background, there is an awareness of like, oh, cool. I'm doing myself a solid and just letting myself feel shitty for the 20-minute drive home or whatever. I love that. I'm going to read... what? Because what, after I read this, uh, what she did, I said, this is such an interesting way of describing sitting in your feelings, right. what she said. So um, she says, the way to start would be first when we feel the tendency to blame, try to get in touch with what feels like to be holding on to ourselves so tightly. What does it feel like to blame? How does it feel to reject? What does it feel like to hate? What does it feel like to be righteously indignant? In each of us, there's a lot of softness, a lot of heart. Touching that soft spot has to be the starting place. This is what compassion is all about. Mm. When we stop blaming long enough to give ourselves an open space in which to feel our soft spot, it's as if we're reaching down to touch a large wound that lies right beneath the protective shell that blaming builds. Mm. Buddhist words such as compassion and emptiness don't mean much until we start cultivating our innate ability simply to be there with pain, with an open heart, and the willingness to not instantly try to get the ground under our feet. It is so hard to feel pain. It is. Especially emotional pain. Yes. Yeah. So I thought that was an interesting way to describe sitting with your feelings, that touching this wound and like having it be present. Yeah. And I want to know how everyone who's listening, if you're still with us, thank you on these two big two-parter episodes. Very dense. I'm talking about Eckhart Tolle and this one. Very dense. Listen, we're trying. We're trying to cover it all. Yeah. Um, I'm curious to know... Do are you like nope 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 I'm I'm nope raying out of this. Uh, that's a callback to uh, Lovia Jays. Yep. I'm judging you. She said nopra, and uh-huh. I love it. Uh-huh. I'm taking it. I'm borrowing. I'm expanding. Some would call that appropriating. I'm just gonna go ahead and let her have that one. Uh, it's a lot of self awareness happening on this podcast. <laughs> that was a whole damn journey. Oh God. Um, I just want to know. Do you squirm when you think about feeling your feelings? I have some friends who are like, nope, I don't. I refuse. And then I have some friends who are like, I just love a good cry in the morning. And, you know. Well, and I feel like there's different ways of feeling feelings, right? Yeah. Yeah. We would love to hear what you guys say. Yeah. How do you tolerate it? So, again, we're talking about widening the circle of compassion here. Mm -hmm. She says we start with ourselves. We make ourselves right. We make ourselves wrong every day, every week, every month, every year of our lives. We feel that we have to be right so that we can feel good. We don't want to be wrong because then we'll feel bad. Mm -hmm. But we could be more compassionate towards all these parts of ourselves. The whole right and wrong business closes us down and makes our world smaller. Yeah. Wanting situations and relationships to be solid, permanent, and graspable obscures the pith of the matter, which is that things are fundamentally groundless. (laughs) It's just fucking terrifying and bleak. It's a little bleak. I got to say. Yeah. 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 And then we go, yeah, it's bleak. Here we are. Yeah. And what are you feeling in that moment that you feel like it's bleak? Are you feeling? I'm feeling like I shouldn't have kids. And I'm feeling like I should just adopt kids who need a good home, which I want to do anyway. Uh, and not perpetuate the cycle of suffering because what does it all matter? Why are we here? What's going on? What's the point? Also, I'm enjoying it, but also not like enough. Is it worth it? What's happening? This is what it's like to be in my brain. I get it. Listen, I totally get it. Can I keep reading? <laughs> yes. <laughs> Instead of making others right or wrong or bottling up right and wrong in ourselves, there's a middle way, a oh very God, powerful middle way. Please help. <laughs> We could see it as sitting on the razor's edge and not falling off to the left or right. This middle way involves not hanging on to our version so tightly. Mm. It involves keeping our hearts and minds open long enough to entertain the idea that when we make things, quote, wrong, we do it out of a desire to obtain some kind of ground or security. Equally, when we make things, quote, right, we are still trying to obtain some kind of ground or security. Mm. Could our minds and our hearts be big enough to just hang out in that space where we're not entirely certain about who's right and who's wrong? Could we have no agenda when we walk into a room with another person, not know what to say, not make that person wrong or right? Could we see, hear, feel other people as they really are? It is powerful to practice this way because we'll find ourselves continually rushing around to try to feel secure again, to make ourselves either or them either right or wrong. But true communication can only happen in that space. And I wrote, you know, my improv mind feels mm-hmm. comfortable in that space. Mm-hmm. Not all the time, 
Yeah. But when I'm like really into that and I've developed that skill of like, I'm just going to listen without an agenda. I'm just, I don't do it all the time. It's really fucking hard. Yeah. It takes a lot of energy. Yeah, I bet. But your thought about should I have kids? Should I not have kids? Mm-hmm. Could there be, could you stand on that razor's edge and just not know? And just have unprotected sex and see what happens. <laughs> I hear you, Lisa. I'm there. Zach, you down? All right. Okay. Well, she says when we well, live. Well, no, but in, in all seriousness, I have to say, there is this conversation, you know. Yes. I'm an optimistic nihilist is how I feel. That's great. Well, as I as I move towards uh, childbearing deadlines, sure. as some might phrase it, uh, where there's, you know, a safe period of time to have babies, and then there's a period of time that gets less and less safe as you go on. Sure, If you go to Europe, that timeline extends. Oh, yeah. They don't feel the same way that we do. Interesting. Yeah, Yeah, well, I just mean statistically with— Yeah, yeah. they don't feel the same way that we do. Ah, and by the way, the maternity deaths are a lot lower in a lot of other countries. Interesting. Um, Thank you. Uh, But what I'm trying to say is I keep trying to go, well, I want to have— X things accomplished, including a nest egg of this amount yes. and a home bought yes. and security yes. for before I have kids. But how the fuck am I supposed to do that before I'm 35 or whatever deadline happens? And everybody just is like, babies don't need houses. Like, babies just need a small crib and you'll figure it out and you can do it and just have a kid. And it's like that sort of like groundlessness. I mean, there are of babies like, all over the world who don't live in a house. Well, yeah, of course. But here's me going like, well, shit, am I ever, does that set me back from getting the house for the kid when it needs a house you know I don't know it's tough Any, obviously kids are on my mind apparently because uh, that's what I'm filtering through this episode but what I'm saying is like the groundlessness of like it's not the perfect time to try and you for sure don't have it fucking figured out but do you just take a leap do you walk on this razor's edge of blah 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 I think I think as I've read this book that she's really just talking about this moment. It's just this moment. Oh, just moment by moment. Just this moment. Thank you. Well, now everyone knows my personal thoughts and feelings. Thank you. As we're talking about widening the circle of compassion. (laughs) Yes. So she's like, how how are we ever going to change anything, right? Like you were talking about, like, should I have kids? Like this crazy world, right? Mm. How is there going to be less aggression in the universe rather than more? She says, we can bring it down to a personal level. How do I learn to communicate with somebody who is hurting me or someone who is hurting a lot of people? How do I speak to someone so that change actually occurs? Well, it starts with being willing to feel what we are going through. It starts with being willing to have a compassionate relationship with the parts of ourselves that we feel are not worthy of existing on the planet. Mm -hmm. If we are willing through meditation to be mindful not only of what feels comfortable, but also of what pain feels like, even if we aspire to stay awake and open to what we're feeling, to recognize and acknowledge it as best as we can in each moment, then something begins to change. So what she's really saying is that the practice of compassion can ultimately change how we feel about ourselves. Mm That's the beginning, this this softening, and and by shifting away from the ancient practice of blame, right, which is mm-hmm. what we've just kind of been taught. Mm-hmm. And then that will ultimately, over time, change the world. Mm. So I, I like that she's like, you don't have to change the world. Yeah. You just have to be willing in one moment in this out breath yeah. to sit with how you're feeling and, and face it. Yeah. That feels very Eckhart Tolle as well. Yeah, right? Yeah. That's um, all you have is now. Yes, yes. Great. Um, so I'm just going to talk about this practice called um, Tonglen, T-O-N-G-L-E-N, um, because I want to talk about what to do. I love this, what she said about when you feel, when, when, uh, if we primarily try to shield ourselves from discomfort, we suffer. So... Yet when we don't close off and we let our hearts break, we discover our kinship with all things. But like when I see all these homeless people on the street, I I freak out, right? Mm -hmm. She says, when we see a woman and her child begging on the street, when we see a man mercilessly beating his terrified dog, when we see a teenager who has been badly beaten, do we turn away because we can't bear it? I said, it depends. Um, Most of us probably do. Someone needs to encourage us not to brush aside what we feel, not to be ashamed of the love and grief it arouses in us, and not to be afraid of pain. The practice of Tonglen, sending and receiving, is designed to awaken bodhicitta, which is um, bodhicitta is a noble or awakened heart, that soft spot, Mm. to put us in touch with a genuine noble heart. It is a practice of taking in pain 
and sending out pleasure and therefore completely turns around our well-established habit of just doing the opposite. Mm. So Tonglen is a practice of creating space and ventilating the atmosphere of our lives um, so that people can breathe freely and relax. And I loved this and started doing it the minute that I read about so this. So taking in pain and breathing out pleasure. So whenever we encounter suffering in any form, the Tonglen instruction is to breathe it in with the wish that everyone could be free of pain. Whenever we encounter happiness in any form, the instruction is to breathe it out, send it out with the wish that everyone could feel joy. It's a practice that allows people to feel less burdened and less cramped, a practice that shows us how to love without conditions. So it's not like you breathe in pain in one breath and then breathe out pleasure. It's if you encounter pleasure, it's a breathe out. So tell me about something that you saw this week that was that made you sad. Uh... Oh, God. Or something in the world that makes you sad. I mean, everything. Uh, 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 the the families losing all of their... Uh, 23 people died in the tornadoes in Alabama. Okay. Okay. So we're going to breathe in the pain that those families and those neighborhoods and those communities and those relatives might be feeling. We're going to breathe it in. Okay. And as we exhale, we are going to exhale that... I'm sorry. We are going to exhale um, and we're going to wish that everybody could be free of pain. <sighs> One more time. Breathe in the pain that they might be feeling and exhale wishing that everybody could be free of pain. That was just something that we could do in that moment. Mm. Right? To connect with your own feelings. Yes. Okay. Now, what is something in the world that brings you great joy? My sisters. Great. So we're going to um, breathe in and we're going to exhale that everyone could feel the joy of great sisters. Oh my God, sisters are the best. <laughs> breathe in again and exhale that everyone could feel the joy of sisters. Does that make sense? No, sissies. Yeah. So that's this idea of Tonglen, which I thought was really interesting. Okay. That's a cool way to connect to it and take action. Yeah. She says when we breathe in pain, somehow it penetrates that armor that we've built up. Yeah. And I don't, by the way, I don't mean to take action, obviously, that we're not taking action against or helping anything, yeah. but it's like that internal state. Yeah. Right. The way we guard ourselves is getting softened up. With the in-breath, the armor begins to fall apart and we can, we find we can breathe deeply and relax. A kindness and a tenderness begin to emerge. We don't have to tense up as if our whole life were being spent in the dentist chair. <laughs> when we breathe out relief and spaciousness, we are also encouraging the armor to dissolve. The yeah. outbreath is a metaphor for opening our whole being. Cool. Um, she says, at the relative level, our noble heart is felt as kinship with all beings. At mm. the absolute level, we experience it as groundlessness or open state. Okay. And she says they work together to connect us with an unlimited love. This is the love that will not die. Compassion uh, and shunyata, which is basic openness, are the qualities of a love that will not die. Lovely. It's really interesting. It is Um, interesting. Here's another metaphor of a mountain I'm going to share with you. (laughs) If only we could incorporate some sort of a mountain (laughs) runner like we did with the duck runner. Thank you. Uh, it's, I wrote, wowee, spiritual awakening <laughs> thank you, thank versus you. the bodhicitta. Remember, okay. bodhicitta is this, this discovery of our soft heart, yeah. the noble awakening. Spiritual awakening is frequently described as a journey to the top of a mountain. We leave our attachments and our worldliness behind and slowly make our way to the top. At the peak, we have transcended all pain. The only problem with this metaphor is that we leave all the others behind. Yep. Our drunken brother, our schizophrenic <laughs> sister, our tormented animals and friends, their suffering continues unrelieved by our personal escape. Huh. In the I wonder process, how our kids feel about her joining the monastery. Okay. In the process of discovering bodhicitta, the journey goes down, not up. Oh. It's as if the mountain pointed toward the center of the earth instead of reaching into the sky. Instead of transcending the suffering of all creatures, we move towards the turbulence of doubt. We jump into it. We slide into it. We tiptoe into it. We move toward it however we can. We explore the reality and unpredictability of ins- insecurity and pain, and we try not to push it away. It takes years, if not lifetimes. We let it be as it is. Mm. Take it at our own pace, our own speed, and aggression, and we move up and down and up and down. And with us moves millions of others. Our companions are awakening from fear. At the bottom, we discover water, the healing water of bodhicitta. Right down there in the thick of things, we discover the love that will not die. Oh, that's really nice. Isn't it beautiful? That's really nice. So uh, this chapter, she just talks about... uh, 
how to practice Tonglen again. It's really nice. Just kind of going against the grain, how you can change that samsara, that wheel of like wanting to avoid pleasure or wanting to seek out pleasure and avoid pain. Uh-huh. And that's just kind of ingrained in us. That's cool. I like that she gives practical yeah. steps. She has a cool chapter called Servants of Peace where she gets this metaphor of um, a art of peace boot camp. Oh. And the, it would be run by like Nelson Mandela, Mother Teresa, and the Holy, His Holiness, the Dalai Lama. Oh my God, and I'm in, sign me up. Yes, and instead of like, um, instead of, you know, learning how to like um, shoot guns, we would like learn meditation practice in Tonglen, right? Amazing. And um, she teaches the uh, six paramitas. Um, and para- the six paramitas are um, the six activities of the servants of peace or transcendent actions. These are generosity, discipline, patience, exertion, and meditation. And prajna is the sixth. So there's a lot of – this is where we're getting, like, deep into Buddhism. Well, I was going to say this book is so – for being, what, 140 pages? Like, yes. it is so dense. Yes. Okay. So she has this great chapter on opinions. And no, she doesn't say they're like assholes. But she says, one of the best practices for everyday living living when we don't have much time for meditation is to notice our opinions. So when we're doing sitting meditation, part of the technique is to become aware of our thoughts, right? Mm -hmm. And then without judgment, without calling them right or wrong, we simply acknowledge that we are thinking. Yeah. It's an exercise in non-aggression towards ourselves. Great. When we're not in meditation, we can begin to notice our opinions just as we notice what we're thinking when we're meditating. This is an extremely helpful practice because we have a lot of opinions, and we tend to take them as truth. We do. mm -hmm. I do. But actually, they aren't truth. They're just our opinions. (laughs) We have a lot of emotional backup for these opinions. They're often judgmental or critical, and they're sometimes about how nice or perfect something is. In any case, we have a lot of opinions, she says. Opinions are opinions, nothing more or less, and we can begin to notice them and begin to label them as opinions just as we label thoughts as thoughts. Just by this simple exercise, we are introduced to the notion of egolessness. All ego really is in our opinion is our opinions, which we take to be solid, real, and the absolute truth of how things are. Mm-hmm. To have even a few seconds of doubt about the solidity and absolute truth of our own opinions, just to begin to see what we that we do have opinions, introduces us to the possibility of egolessness. Yeah. We don't have to make these opinions go away, and we don't have to criticize ourselves for having them. We could just notice what we say to ourselves and see how much of it is just our particular take on reality, which may or may not be shared by other people. We can just let these opinions go and come back to the immediacy of our experience. Thank you. We can come back to looking at someone's face in front of us, to tasting our coffee, to brushing our teeth, to whatever we might be doing. If we see our opinions as opinions and even for a moment let them go and then come back to the immediacy of our experience, we may discover that we are in a brand new world, that we have new eyes and new ears. Right. Um, She says, when I talk about noticing opinions, I'm talking about noticing them as a simple way of beginning to pay attention to what we think and do and how much energy comes along with that. Yeah. Then we can also begin to realize how solid we make things and how easy it is to get into a war in which we want our opinions to win and someone else's to lose. It is especially tempting to do this when we're engaged in social action. Oh, yeah. I did not expect her to take this direction. She says, uh, she uses an example of an ozone layer. We can rightly say that the thinning of the ozone layer is scientific fact. It's not simply an opinion. But if the way that we work with trying not to further harm the ozone layer is to solidify our opinion against those who we feel are at fault, then nothing ever changes. Negativity begets negativity. In other words, no matter how well documented or noble our cause is, it won't be helped by our feeling aggression towards the oppressors or those who are promoting the danger. Nothing will ever change through aggression. Well, so what does she recommend we do? Well, she says you could say that not much changes through non-aggression either. <laughs> I said, Pima. However, non-aggression <laughs> benefits the earth profoundly. The root oh. cause of famine, starvation, and cruelty at the personal level is aggression. When we hold on to our opinions with aggression, no matter how valid our cause, we are simply adding more aggression to the planet. Well, it just goes back to ego. I mean, it's yes. the same thing because you're going – no, I'm right because of my ego and I'm not, and then people are battling and it's a whole fucking thing. Yeah, so she says the difference is noticing between opinions and clear seeing intelligence. Mm. Intelligence is like seeing thoughts as thinking and not having opinions about whether these thoughts are right or wrong. Okay. Then she goes into, it's good for us to sort out what's opinion, what's fact. Yes, mm-hmm. I'm like, of course. And she says this process requires enormous patience. It's important to remember while we're out there non-aggressively working for reform, even if our particular issue doesn't get resolved, we're adding peace to the world. It's a, okay. little, a little slow for me. Yeah. Uh, yeah. But 
Yeah, it's just like when people are clearly wrong and greedy and killing the planet. I it's know. Hard. It's hard. And we um, don't have a lot of time to be like, I okay. hope we have 12 Also, this years. was written in 1997. Thank you. Got it. Okay. Um, she says, notice your opinions. If you find yourself becoming aggressive about your opinions, notice that. If you find yourself being not aggressive, notice that. And I said, well, Gay Hendricks loves this chapter for me because mm-hmm. I'm very aggressive about my opinions mm-hmm. about him. But that's why we love you. Uh-huh. Um, uh, the last chapter that I'm going to talk about is reversing the wheel of samsara. Okay. Somehow we keep distancing ourselves from the dharma. It's as if we regard it as philosophy or a crash course in self-improvement. And no matter how often we are encouraged to make meditation and the teachings relevant to our emotional life, we continue to forget to apply it when we get stuck. When we are angry with someone or brokenhearted, when we want to get even or commit suicide, at times like this, we don't seem to think meditation or the teachings quite cut the mustard. Mm. They don't speak to the realness of the situation. Many people say that meditation is not enough, that we need therapy and support groups to deal with our most stuck patterns. They feel strongly that Dharma doesn't quite penetrate our confusion deeply enough. I often suggest therapy for a student. I see it as a specific skillful means that for some people is extremely helpful. For some of us, working closely with a non-judgmental therapist allows us to overcome our fears and finally develop loving kindness for ourselves. Thank you, Pima. Thank you, Pima. Um, and she says, for myself, I know that for many of us, the Dharma supplies itself itself supplies the tools and support we need to find our own beauty, our own insight, and our own ability to work with neuroses and pain. Wait, so she says some people need to work with a therapist and we're like, great. And then she's like, but for me, I'm good. Well, uh, no, but she's saying uh, not for, but for me. She said at the same time, I know that not only is the Dharma more revolutionary. She's saying that um, to, to truly be willing to be with yourself, if you can do it, Mm. to with you know, some people need a non-judgmental therapist to help them develop loving kindness. I do. I do too. She's not judging it. I think she's also saying you and know, also for the her powerful. for her philosoph- her philosophical life. Yeah. is that you can. Okay? Um okay. Yes. But I think it's it's scary. It's scary. All this inner work that she's saying is very, very scary, right? Well, it's terrifying. And also, I, I just personally love having a guide to go, people have done it. They've made the journey and gotten through on the other side. And, oh, you're right at the part where you're having all the self-doubt and anger yeah. about it. And this is great. You know, just somebody to reinforce, like, your f- it's scary and it's still safe. I also think she doesn't expect people to do it alone. Yeah. They would be right. guided by their um llama. Mm-hmm. Or whoever's the root um teacher okay. or their rin rin posh, right? Like whatever. Okay. So um the key is changing our habits and in particular the habits of our mind. Um and then she gave this great explanation of how she changed her pattern. She had this example. She said, I remember the day I understood without question that we create our situation by how we use our mind, by how we keep patterning our responses to a life in the same old, very dusty, utterly predictable way. A situation came up about money. We were running out of money. I began to get tense. I felt as if a huge weight were literally sitting on my head. I began to panic. I had to find a way out. Until I found a way to solve this problem, I could not relax. I could not enjoy the sunshine on the water or the eagle sitting in a tree right outside my window. The whole thing was hauntingly familiar. Why I caught it this time more dramatically than ever before, I don't know. Probably it was a result of all the years of looking as honestly and uncritically as I could at my experience. Mm. Possibly it was also a result of all the meditation training I had done seeing when I'd spin off and then just coming back to the present. At any rate, that day I caught it. Right there in the middle of a very habitual state of mind, I saw what I was doing. I not only saw what I was doing, I also stopped. I stopped following through with my habitual plan to save the day. I decided not to rush around trying to avert disaster. I let thoughts that, quote, only I could rescue us come, and I let them go. I decided Mm. to see what would happen without my input, even if it meant that everything would fall apart. Mm. Sometimes you just have to let everything fall apart. Stopping your eyes are so wide. Stopping my actions was the first step and the hardest one. Not saving the day was going against the grain of how I operated. I felt like there was a huge wheel that had colossal momentum for going in a habitual direction. And I was turning it around. That's what the Dharma is about, turning all our habits around, reversing the process of how we make everything so solid, reversing the wheel of samsara. 
It starts with catching ourselves when we spin off in the same old ways. Usually we feel that there's a large problem when we have to fix it. The instruction is to stop. Do something unfamiliar. Do anything besides rushing off in the same old direction up to the same old tricks. Mm. So she said, I could experiment this way without becoming rigid or harsh because of the training I'd had in making friends with my thoughts and emotions. Mm -hmm. Somehow, without cultivating unlimited friendliness for ourselves, we don't progress along the path. When we meditate and we hear the teachings, it helps to remember that we are engaged in developing kindness. Mm. Still, even after many years, many of us continue to practice harshly. We practice with guilt, as if we're coming, we're going to be excommunicated if we don't do it right. We practice so we won't be ashamed of ourselves and with fear that someone will discover what a, quote, bad meditator we are. The old joke is that a Buddhist is someone who is either meditating or feeling guilty about meditating. There's not much joy in that. <laughs> so she says, then my, I guess I'm a Buddhist. Right? Yeah. <laughs> my experience is that by practicing without shoulds, we gradually discover our wakefulness and our confidence. Gradually, without any agenda except to be honest and kind, we assume responsibility for being here in this unpredictable world, in this unique moment, in this precious human body. Every act counts. Every thought and emotion counts, too. This is the path we have. This is all the path we have. This is where we apply the teachings. This is where we come to understand why we meditate. We are only going to be here for a short while. Even if we live to 108, our life will be too short for witnessing all its wonders. The Dharma is each act, each thought, each word we speak. Are we at least willing to catch ourselves spinning off and to do that without embarrassment? Do we at least aspire to not consider ourselves a problem, but simply a pretty typical human being could at that moment give him or herself a break and stop being so predictable? Mm. My experience is that this is how our thoughts begin to slow down. Magically, it seems that there's a lot more space to breathe, a lot more room to dance, and a lot more happiness. If you ask how in the world that we can... Um, reverse this process of making things solid, the knack of stopping the claustrophobic world as we know it, putting down our centuries of baggage and stepping into new territory, the answer is simple. Make the Dharma personal and explore it wholeheartedly. I'll stop there. The last little um, chapter is about how the path is not the, the path is the goal. The path is not route uh, yeah, 66. Yeah. Oh, it's we the know journey. this. We know it. You the know it. Journey. The journey. It's not the destination. Blah, you guys, blah, blah, blah. When things fall apart. Lisa. Oh, my God. Great job. I'm exhausted. I feel like I, I feel like you guys got a sense that it's very dense, but accessible. Thank you for wading through that. Um, it just feels very reminiscent of. Uh, why can't I? I always have to think in my mind to the power of now and then go to a new earth. I can never just say a new sure. earth. Um, if it makes you feel better, I keep calling it a new Perth. Thank you. But it's not it at all. And not even the same book. <laughs> um, I'm not even going to explain that. I'm just going to reward our serialized listeners. Thank you. Um, it just sounds like all of this. The word that keeps coming to my mind is relief. Like if we, if I yeah. could just lean into this and this practice, it feels like it would be an enormous relief. But also, it does feel so impossible well, sometimes in the world we live yes. in. And like, fuck, and look, she's an ordained Buddhist nun. Okay, it is yeah. her life's work yeah. to live in the moment and to embrace suffering yeah. and to teach others how to do this. Yeah. So, is this going to be my everyday life while I'm driving on the four hundred five trying to get to an audition? I am going to cuss at people. I am going to blame. I am going to have fear. Yeah. I am going to have hope. Yeah. You know, but maybe being aware of these things and just being able to come back to that out breath is kind of a cool concept. It is. And I think if it can, if it can provide you with a modicum of relief, just a teeny tiny bit, then cool. Yeah. You know, it doesn't have to be like total and immense relief, but like. Yeah. I definitely use that Tonglen. I, t I use that Tonglen, yeah. which is that breathing in of pain. Yeah, I was going to ask, of, so yeah. is that the thing that you sort of put into practice from this half of the book? Yeah, because week? I do meditate. I have meditated. I don't have a consistent meditation practice, and I don't feel guilty about that. Um, but um, I I did love that idea. It, it made it feel a, a very accessible way to deal with some of the horrors of the world Yeah, without turning hard, without yeah. turning, like, putting up blame and—, and and turning hard to that pain. I love that. Is there anything that you hated about this half of the book that you felt like she got wrong? This half of the book is very detailed into Buddhist teachings with mm. like the six paramitas and like all, all these different things. And um, it, 
it gave me much more information about Buddhism than I really wanted. God. But also, I'm not going to tell an ordained nun to be like, mm, could you just it. like back could off? Could you maybe not the- talk about your <laughs> belief system so much? Thanks. So you know, um, but it's also interesting, and she makes it very accessible and very Great. understandable. Yeah, it sounds, and it sounds like she the book was not one long sentence. No. Like Small a chapters. new earth was. Yeah. And yeah. Not, not an Escher at all. Great. And then who is this book perfect for and who is it terrible for? Listen, if you have somebody who's like, I think I want to be Buddhist, get them this book. Yeah. Because I think it. if, if, if they read this and they're still like, yes, life is suffering and yes, there's, you know, I, I can find some contentment in that. Great. Um <laughs> I don't know if this if if somebody if somebody if I were like an addict and somebody handed me this book I might be like go fuck yourself. Yeah. Because telling me how I should handle my business might be tough. Well, and also addiction is a different thing. That's not necessarily a thought pattern. You have a physiological It's true. craving. It's true. You know, that maybe you went towards it because of a thought. I mean, I don't I can't unpack that on this podcast. Right. I am not qualified. Um Stam. Stam. Truly outrageous. Truly, truly, truly outrageous. Um do you have anything happy to leave us with? Or like a transition segment? Yeah. I, I mean Often I feel very disconnected because I have such a, um, I don't want to say negative, but a very kind of like nihilistic view of things. Yeah. Critical thinking. You know, I grew up in a home. I don't know if you, do you know what my dad did? No. He was a professor of finance at the university um, in Champaign. And then he, uh, his second career was making um, second life, second career he was an expert economic witness in cases of wrongful death or injury. Oh, my God. So I kind of always grew up in this house knowing, like, of terrible events that happened to people. Oh. Like, I was never allowed on a trampoline. I was never allowed on a scooter. I was never allowed—because my dad had always testified in a case where a kid had ended up brain damaged because of this. Like, I always knew about the potential bad things that could happen. Oh, my God. And it really framed my life in a very—I'm very grateful for it because— um it made me not take life for granted. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. And uh, <laughs> no. I yeah, but it just seems like never on a trampoline, never on a scooter, being yeah. exposed to all these horrible things is a whole other thing. Yeah. Yeah, but I I guess I I was aware of the impermanence of life yes. very early on. Yeah. Through through and was and was fortunately able to learn about it through the stories of other people, not my own yeah. sad experience. So um you know, I mean, did I go on a trampoline? You know, I did. And when my dad busted me, I did get in trouble. But, <laughs> you know, the point is is that I was always aware of the impermanence of life. Yes. And so I think that now hearing about a a, a, a philosophy and not a, it's not a religion. Buddhism isn't a religion, but it you know this philosophy of how this is how things are, mm. and it kind of makes me feel less like a weirdo from having that perspective. Totally, yeah. And uh, I I will say since you know my dad died. Uh, knowing the impermanence of things, not just understanding, but being like, oh, yeah, we could all, it could all end tomorrow, um, has actually brought a lot of gratitude. Yeah. And uh, enjoyment isn't the word. Maybe it is because it's like, you know, because it's the obvious example, again, the sunset. We can look at the sunset in total and complete awe because we know it is here for like 15 minutes. It's changing every moment and it's gone forever. And so we can look up at the sky and go, it wasn't that fantastic. We'll never see that again. And so I kind of go throughout my life like, man, I'm really enjoying my relationship with Zach while it lasts. And it could last 50 years, but it will end. You know what I mean? And I'm really enjoying being across from you in this podcast it will end, you yeah, know, when, th- when we've made millions too. of dollars yes. and it's 12 years from now. Thank and you. But I feel like, you know, like my dogs are old and oh, yeah. I come across some people who are just like, oh, they can't even think about a talk at it. And I'm like, yeah, I'm not like that. I I think I know it will be sad and painful, 
But also like part of, I think what makes me great is that I'm able to face that head on. That's a powerful thing, Lisa. Do you know what I mean? Like I'm not going to let my dogs languish past when they should. Yeah. And I'm not going to um, not pay attention to what they need because I don't want to think about it. Right. You know what I mean? Like uh, things end. Everything dies, right? Like everything is impermanent. Yeah. Yes. Um, I am going to add, speaking of dogs, if you need a palate cleanser after this, if you um, just want to smile or spark a little more joy in your uh, Instagram feed, I really am loving following uh, the account Ever After Doodles. Thank you. It's some of the cutest golden doodles I've ever seen, like apricot ones with little white patches and they're so fucking cute. For sure. So just picture a cute little doggo, curly hair, tongue out, enjoying life, ready to play. They're living in the moment. Oh, my God. I need a dog, everybody. You do. <laughs> Call my landlord. Let's wage a war of <laughs> kindness on him. Um, and with that, we'll leave you with Life, life is, is abundant. Abundantly impermanent. Thank you. <laughs> Go Help Yourself, a comedy self-help podcast to make life suck less, was produced by Misty Stinnett, Lisa Linky, and Matt Sav. Our theme song was also written by Matt Sav. He's amazing. <laughs> do you want to get in touch? You do. Email us at gohelpyourselfpodcast at gmail.com. And you know, you can also find us on the social medias. Instagram at gohelpyourselfpodcast. Twitter at G-H-Y podcast, or check out our website, gohelpyourselfpodcast.com. And if you liked our podcast, please subscribe, rate, and review us on iTunes to help other people discover our show. It's really the least you can do. And why don't you tell all of your friends? Bye! Bye.